0: Alright, this morning, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be in verses 55, and we're going to go through verse 15 and chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the chairs, and this morning's passage is in those Bibles on page 835. Again, that's Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to pick it up in verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who, was, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath... Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So this week, we pick up on the heels of last week, where we talked about the events that immediately followed Jesus' death on the cross. And today... We're going through this, this bigger chunk, and it seems like there are a whole lot of different things going on in this passage. But really, what we're looking at today is Jesus' burial, His his resurrection, and then the response that the Jews make to all these events. And as we go through this passage, I want us to really focus and kind of zoom in on three elements of this passage. The first is Jesus' love for the outcast. The second is Jesus keeping his word. And then the third is him being worshipped by these women who are mentioned in the passage. So the first thing that we read about is uh, Matthew telling us that there were these women who were witnesses to Jesus' death. Specifically, he mentions three. Mary Magdalene mentions Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who for the rest of our passage, she goes from Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, to the other Mary. Wouldn't you like that to be your legacy throughout history? There's Mary Magdalene, and there's the other one. We don't know who this Mary is. It's, it's likely that she was Jesus' mother, because uh, she's the mother of James and Joseph as well. Uh, and then there's the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John's Mother, And so these women are here, and they're, they're recorded throughout this passage as witnesses of these events. They witness Jesus' death, they witness Jesus' burial, and then they witness his resurrection. They're actually the first witnesses of the resurrection. And this is significant, it's important for two reasons. The first is that, as I said, they play a huge role in this passage. None of the other disciples are mentioned. The only thing that they're mentioned is is to go and tell them what's happened. These women are the the front-runners in this passage, they're the the first witnesses of all these events. And the second reason why it's important that Matthew mentions them, that he gives them such a prominent role in this story, is that in the ancient world, in, in biblical times, women weren't very highly regarded. In fact, they were disregarded. They couldn't even serve as legal witnesses. And so Matthew is, is telling this story. He's recording that these people are here as witnesses to these events when most people in that day would read this story and say, they don't count. They, they can't be witnesses of this. Where are the men at? Where are the reputable witnesses? I'm not saying that that was a good thing, that they should have had that stance. We know now that they shouldn't have. But that's the way that it was. And the fact that Matthew tells this story and gives this account and that these events happened the way they did, I think tells us two things. First, it emphasizes the truth of this story. I mean, think about it. We've probably all been there where we are, or maybe you haven't all been here, but where you're making up a story to convince your parents that you shouldn't be in trouble. When I was growing up, I missed curfew quite a bit, and one of my favorite excuses was, Mom, I got stopped at a sobriety checkpoint on the way home. Of course, I hadn't been drinking, but it took some time, and that's why I'm late. And the story was believable enough, because they happened all around where we lived, uh, that they, they bought it. You know, and I, I got off the hook. I'm not saying that line's a good thing, line was a bad thing, I shouldn't have done it. Kids, don't lie to your parents. But if you're going to lie about something, you're not going to put elements into the story that people will not believe. If Matthew, if Mark, if Luke, if John, if they were just making this stuff up to try and sell people a a bundle of lies, they wouldn't make the witnesses of these events women. Because people wouldn't believe it. They would put people in who are respectable, who are valid witnesses. People that you read the story and you think, well, of course it's true. If that guy saw it, it has to be. So number one, it emphasizes the truth of The story. Number two, the second reason why I think it's significant that women are highlighted in this passage and in other passages in the Gospels is because it emphasizes the way that Jesus transforms society. I mean, think about this. We are reading the written account of a tax collector, tax collectors were hated in Jewish society. They were people that were traitors. They worked for the enemy. And yet, Jesus has changed him to the degree that he has written an account of his life specifically to a Jewish audience. And in this story, we see account after account after account of Jesus ministering to these people who normally in society were outcasts. People that were oppressed by demons, people that had leprosy, people that had other illnesses that kept them on the outside of society looking in. Women. And in the person of Christ, the kingdom of God has come to earth and it's changing the way society works, it's reversing the order of things. And what we see in the presence of these women in this passage is that that's happening. His kingdom is counter to the way culture normally works. And I think that if we desire His kingdom to come, if we're seeking it, if it is gaining ground and advancing in our life, in our community, we will see these same things. If you're somebody who is okay with there being outcasts, if you're someone who's okay with disregarding people that aren't like you or don't fit in your social circle, then you're not somebody who's living in the kingdom of heaven. You're somebody who's living in an earthly kingdom that's made in your own image. His kingdom transcends and breaks down those barriers. And so we should be seeing those things just like we see this in this passage. These ladies witness His death, His burial, His resurrection, and they're also witnesses to the fact that His kingdom shapes the world in new ways. These next five verses after Matthew introducing them, we see Jesus buried. What happens here is there's this rich guy named Joseph who's from Arimathea. Luke tells us actually that he was a member of the Jewish council. He was one of the Jewish religious leaders that was responsible for condemning Jesus to death. Luke tells us that he was opposed to it. He argued against it. But he was still part of that group. And here he comes and he asks Pilate for the body because he wants to bury it. And he puts Jesus in his own tomb. We also find out from John that Nicodemus helps him do it. So they're burying him according to Jewish customs, and apparently they used 75 pounds of spices. I don't know how much they normally use, but that seems like a lot. The point is that this cost them great expense. Not only did Joseph give up his tomb that he had cut into the rock for himself, but he also would have spent all this money to, to provide for these things for Jesus to be buried with. And I would imagine that he didn't know at this point that Jesus was just going to use it for three days. You know, it's not like he approaches this and says, well, I'll let him borrow it for a while. He's giving this over to Jesus. We also find out that like tombs were, it was sealed with a big, big stone. The way tombs were normally constructed is there was a slot in front of the door that sloped downward, and so they would put this big, round rock that it was easy to shut but difficult to open because you would have to roll this big rock back uphill. And so it's sealed with this stone. And then we find out about what the Jews do. They're worried that the disciples are going to come and steal Jesus' body. We shouldn't read this as thinking that, The Jews actually believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead and they want to keep Him inside. That's not their approach. They think His disciples will come and take His body. And so they go to Pilate. They ask Pilate for soldiers. Pilate tells them, essentially, you already have soldiers. The Jews already had Roman soldiers that were stationed at the temple and so he's telling them, I'm not going to give you any more. Use your own. Go put them in front of the tomb and seal it. The sealing what they would have done is they would have put some sort of wax seal and maybe a rope across the front of the tomb. So it's got a rock in front of it. It's got soldiers in front of it. And then it's somehow sealed shut with an official Roman seal so that they know whether or not anyone has gotten in or out. As we read earlier, we know that that's not going to keep things from happening. Listen to what Matthew says. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So there's another earthquake, just like the one we saw last week. The angel comes and, and, and moves the stone. It seems like these two events together move the stone away, the angel and the earthquake. And what we shouldn't do here is make the mistake of confusing these two events. The one we saw last week where the earthquake breaks open the tombs and then the Old Testament saints who are raised come out, and then this one where the earthquake opens the tomb and Jesus is raised. Let me explain this. We need to think about one of the the most probably well-known resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's from John 20. It says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples are in the upper room. The doors are locked because they are afraid that the Jews are going to come and arrest them just like they came and arrest Jesus. So they're in this room. The doors are locked. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is there. He's in their presence. How did he get in? I don't think that John wants us to understand that Jesus climbed in a window. The doors are locked, and he's there. Because of who he is, because he is God, because he has been risen from the dead, he can go through walls. And yet he has a body. They, they see his hands and his side. Later, Thomas touches them. Later, Jesus eats fish with them. So if we go back to Matthew. Because of this event, we shouldn't get confused that Jesus needs someone to open the tomb for himself to come out. If he can enter a locked room, he can certainly leave one. The first earthquake last week, the purpose of that was to let the Old Testament saints out. But that's not the purpose of this one. The purpose of this one was to let witnesses in. The stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but to show that the tomb was already empty. He doesn't need someone to let him out. This is what we see happen. The angel appears. His appearance is like lightning, his clothing is white as snow, and then these manly men who are soldiers, who are supposed to be battle-tested, pass out. They see this angel, and they fall down like dead men. The women are afraid, but at least they're still conscious. This is what the angel says to them. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. I know why you are here. And he says, but he's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. The angel invites them in. Remember, the stone was moved so that they could enter and see that he's not there. And I think that the most significant words in what the angel says to the women are these three little words at the end of the first sentence of verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. It's important because as we've been through Matthew, we've seen this pattern again and again and again where he says, Jesus did this thing to fulfill this. Jesus did this to fulfill what Isaiah had said, to fulfill what Jeremiah had said, to fulfill the prophets, to fulfill the law, to, you know, as it was written, he did this. And God could have given the angel that message very easily. He could have came and. Referred to any number of Old Testament passages and say he has risen as Isaiah said. He has risen as it was written. But he doesn't say that. The message that God gives to the angels that Jesus has risen as he said. I think that's hugely important. Because it tells us, it confirms for us that all the stuff that has happened to Jesus doesn't happen outside of his control. He has risen, He has died, He was buried exactly as He said He would. These words are important because they tell us who Jesus is. He's not just the Son of God because He's risen from the dead. He's the Son of God because every single thing that He says will happen, happens. Just like God says, let there be light and there's light, Jesus said this. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. It happened. They will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, be mocked and flogged and crucified. It happened. And He will be raised on the third day. All of these things happened as He said. Jesus keeps His Word because that's who He is. Everything that he said happened to him would happen to him. That means not only can we have confidence in who he is, but we can have confidence in what he says about us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, to save sinners. That's us. It happened as he said. We don't need to worry about whether we're still dead in our trespasses and sins because he's redeemed us as he said. He keeps His promises to us. But the angel doesn't just tell them about Jesus. He also gives them a task. He says, go quickly and tell His disciples that He's risen from the dead and that He's going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. So these women go. And as they're going to do what the angel has told them to do, they meet Jesus on the way. Jesus says greetings gives them a simple, common, ordinary greeting in the midst of circumstances that are anything but ordinary. He just says, hey. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Here there's two options to interpret what's happening, what they're doing. They took hold of his feet. Number one... Jesus is hovering in the air about arm height. So they reach out and grab onto his feet. It's possible the guy's just risen from the dead. Surely that's not beyond him. But I think that what any person in their right mind would understand happening here is that they see Jesus on this path. They are, they are running. They are going quickly to tell the disciples what the angel has told them. They see Jesus. They fall down to the ground, and grab on to His feet. They embrace Him, and they worship Him. They are confronted with who Jesus is. They're confronted with the risen King, and their only response is to be humbled to the ground and worship Him. That's what we need to worship Jesus rightly. We don't need the right style of music. We don't need the right songs. We don't need the soundboard or the PowerPoint to go flawlessly. What we need if we're going to worship God rightly is exactly what these women receive. We need the Spirit of God to reveal to us who the Son of God is so that we're compelled to worship Him. So that that's the only outlet for us. Nothing else is going to do that. There's nothing other than the Spirit that will cause us to worship Jesus rightly. When the Spirit reveals Him to us, we'll worship Him rightly. Following their worship, what we see is Him reiterating to the women the message of the angels. He had to do this. John tells us that Jesus told Mary, don't cling to Me. They wanted to stay and keep worshiping Him. They wanted to be in His presence. They wanted to abide with Him. And He has to say, let go and go do what the angel said. Go do what I say. Because the disciples need to hear. His brothers need to hear that He's risen. So He tells them to go. And as we'll see next week, He does appear to them in Galilee as He said He would but his followers aren't the only ones that respond to what Jesus has done, the fact that he's risen. We also see in this last little part the response of the Jewish leaders. The guards come and they say, the tomb's open, he's gone. They probably told him that an angel appeared and they passed out. And yet, when these Jewish religious leaders are confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, of the fact that He's actually done what He said He was going to do, even though they didn't believe that He would, instead of responding the way that they should have, instead of being the religious leaders of the people as they should have been, they resort to lies and deception. That's what they spread. And so you can kind of think about this passage as the the, the false Great Commission. They gather together. They say, This thing has happened, but this is the story we're going to give people. They pay off the soldiers to lie and say, so We fell asleep. His disciples came and took the body. He's not risen from the dead, his body's somewhere else. Matthew says, This is the story that has been spread among the Jews to this day. While those who were disregarded and unlikely witnesses of these events, are responding rightly in worship to Christ. We see these people that should have been first in line to worship Him, rejecting Him and spreading lies about Him. The difference is between these two groups of people. It's not that one group did the right thing and one group did the wrong thing. It's that God revealed Himself in the person of Christ to one and not to other. These Jewish religious leaders weren't confronted with the risen Christ in the way the women were. And that only highlights our need for Him to work. No matter what we do in this room or in any other room week after week after week, if the Spirit isn't moving, if the Spirit isn't working, if the Spirit isn't causing us to worship, then we're wasting our time. We need Him to reveal Christ to us so that we can worship Christ. And so this morning, before we sing, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get together in small groups of people and we're going to pray together and ask the Spirit to work in us. We're going to ask God to make Christ attractive to us. We're going to ask God to cause us to worship Him rightly together. Because if He doesn't do that work, then we're just singing songs because they're on the wall in front of us. And not because we really feel them. Not because we're really convinced of the truth of their message. And I don't want us to be a church that does that. So, right now in smaller groups, you can you know, figure that out on your own, whether you have five people, whether you have ten people, whether you have twelve people. But just circle up with a few of the people around you and pray. You know, This isn't a time to share prayer requests about our ailments. This is a time for us to pray for the Spirit to work in us and in our worship. And then after a little bit of time, I'll come back up and pray and close us, and then the worship team will come and lead us.